Hi, this is Bruno Ziza, head of data and analytics at Google Cloud, and you are listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Uh, today, I have Bruno Aziza from Google on the line. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, I'm looking forward to this. I was just watching one of your, do you call it CarCast? Yeah, it's a friend of mine, actually, an, an industry analyst from Gartner, Merv Adrian, who should get the credit for this because, you know, I've been doing this now for a couple of years and he said, hey, you should call this a CarCast. I never thought of that because it's true. I do it every Sunday from my car. Uh, it's low production. It's nowhere near what you're doing. But yeah, it's called the CarCast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're short little uh, like news briefings, almost topics, things that are, I guess, floating around in your head and things that you're seeing. And I was digging into one of those about data products and data product management, which will kind of be the focus of, of our chat today. So it was good to kind of see what was going on there. And you were in Sao Paulo look, coming back from a, a customer visit or a conference or something, I think was the first one I saw. Yeah, that's the kind of the, the concept of this is, you know, a few years ago, I was meeting with the chief data officer and they were explaining to me that, you know, it's a really crowded space, lots of buzzwords, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what's real, what's not. And given that, you know, my life is really spending with customers and partners and, you know, I get a good sense of the top trends that are happening. It's all a lot of people on LinkedIn that tag me on relevant posts. And so that's what I do is I basically on Saturday, I read everything that I might have missed throughout the week. I do a little synthesis for myself. And I just extract the top five things that happened in data and analytics that week. So it's not, like I said, it's not meant to be this big production. It's just, ideally, it's here are the top things that happened this week that if you're a data leader, VP of analytics or chief data officer, you probably want to know about. And that's the idea. It's not for people listening. It's not an opportunity to send me your marketing material. You know, I'm not promoting my company. I'm certainly not going to promote your company in those. It's just a service to the community. And frankly, Selfishly, I'm also learning a lot because people reach out to me and they say, hey, you know, here's what I think and here's what I've seen. So we're, we're all kind of learning through the whole process. Just to give some context, my understanding is you manage a team of product managers who each own or co-own a set of the various Google tools that fall under the, the Google Cloud space. Is that correct? That's correct. So I run outbound product management for data analytics. And, you know, the products I focus on are products like BigQuery and Dataproc and Dataflow and Looker. And so we have a great team of very seasoned product managers whose job is to really want, you know, understand what's happening with customers. We've got lots of customers that innovate across our platform. So we have a global presence, as you might guess. And so we're really trying to gather the best practices and then turn that to the rest of the audience to say, hey, look, this is what we're seeing. So spend a lot of time with that, spend a lot of time with partners, and then of course spend a lot of time making sure that we provide the best products, services, and we make it as easy as we can for customers to innovate quickly on top of our platform. It's a topic I've been really passionate about for, uh, I want to say, 25 or plus years. You know, I'm, I'm the data guy. <laughs> I've only been in the data world. That's kind of the idea of this team is how do we help accelerate innovation for customers across the world? And my team, like you said, are product managers who have been in industries just as long, sometimes some of them longer than I have been, so we can help customers with that level of experience. 
I want to jump into this topic of data product management in a moment, but what is just good software product management look like to you or good software product managers, particularly because you're working in this kind of vendor tool space. And I want to also know about are the traits of a data product manager who's explicitly building a solution that might be built on top of a stack of tools. Is that a similar skill set to someone who's actually creating vendor tools, the traditional software product manager? What does a good one look like? Yeah, it's a great question because what's happening in the industry is really interesting for people that are running data teams today and listening to us. The makeup of their teams is starting to look more like what we do for product management. So this idea of the data product manager is, is become very evident for a lot of our, of our customers and it's pulling from the discipline of product management. I think there was research from Harvard recently that said if you treat your data like a product, you can reduce the time it takes to implement these new use cases by as much as 90%. So this idea of implementing the discipline of product management at your organization is very useful. Now, of course, I've been, like you said, in this space for a long time. So product management software is something that I've hired for. I was a product manager myself when I started. And there are a set of attributes that I think are essential for you know what an excellent product manager looks like. Here, you know the, the resource that put point people to is a, a great blog that I remember reading. I think there's a blog that's 12 years old, by the way. So this is not a something that just published last uh, last week by Andreessen Horowitz. Actually, it's it's Horowitz that wrote it. It called it "Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager." If you want to Google that, it is. I mean, right on. You know, when I started as a product manager, the, the attributes were the first one is you are the CEO of the product. And that idea, I think, is essential because as a CEO of the product, you don't just think about the engineering or just the software. You think beyond the bits, right? You think about how are people just adopting this and, you know, and what's required to make them successful. Jeffrey Moore has this idea of the whole product. You know, your product is not the solution in isolation. Your product is part of a bigger picture where, you know, you're trying to help the consumers of this product be successful with what it is that they're trying to do. Another attribute is, in my mind, the product manager understands the jobs to be done. So this is, a, again, other a theory. Uh, I don't know if you read the book, The Innovator's Dilemma. The, the author of, of this book is, is an MIT professor, and he talks about this idea of jobs to be done. A job is essentially what you're trying to do as a customer, and you're trying to identify what are the circumstances the customers are dealing with, and what are the obstacles that they have, and how is your product solution or the com combination of the product with other people's solutions enabling that job to get done. And so the attributes of one, ownership. You're the CEO. You own the experience of the product. And two is work backwards from the customers. What is the job they're trying to do? Is I think is essential to be successful in this discipline. I mean, certainly the, the ones that I've hired, the ones that I've seen really become exceptional product managers have these two attributes, ownership and customer obsession, I would say. Yeah, that tracks very logically with my experience working with many PMs over the last 20 years and, and also the way we approach it in human-centered and user experience design, which is always kind of starting with the end, right? And you're, you're working it backwards from these goals and objectives that people have. I want to reduce my work or I want to give a better presentation and I need evidence to support my choices or whatever, you know, the data use cases. But we're working backwards from that and then compiling the right set of technology solutions that need to be built or bought or whatever in order to facilitate that. We don't start with let's all this data from 15 systems. Let's put it all together into something and then clean it up 
and then we'll have all these spigots ready to serve stuff out of them if someone needs something. That's a very data and engineering focused approach to doing things. So the product orientation, I think, is just like you said, it starts at the end. It's being very well aware of what the objectives are. I guess another part of that, right, is not necessarily giving people what they ask for. So I'm kind of curious how you guys digest this, because I'm sure you're getting feature requests coming from customers that want like, oh, if only Looker had this X capability or if only BigQuery could do X or whatever. And so you're probably routinely getting feature requests that have to be unpacked. Correct. And you have to do the same thing even for maybe the audience that's listening to the show who are the users of some of these solutions, you're probably presented with a presenting problem sometimes without context. Is, is that true? And, and do you guys spend a lot of time unpacking what's behind those requests? You use a term that I think is just critical here is context. By the way, you know, I, I realized I talked about his book, but I didn't talk about the author is Clayton Christensen, the author of Dilemma. And then the book where he really details the jobs to be done is, is this book called Competing Against Luck. I blogged about it, I think, a couple of years ago, but I'm, I'm a big fan of that type of theory. And, and the idea of context is really trying to investigate what is the problem we're trying to solve. What's interesting about this jobs to be done theory really is that the problems themselves have not changed. It's the way that we're solving the problems that change and get better over time, right? So if you take the simple problem of transportation, for instance, I know it's outside of the enterprise world. This idea of I need to go and meet with Brian, that's always been the problem. In the past, I might have solved it with a horse and I moved to a uh, car and then all of a sudden I move with, well, this platform we're using, we're not in the same city, we're not in the same time zone, but we are connecting. So this need of what is the job to be done here is Brian and Bruno have been able to talk together and brainstorm a set of solutions with the community. That is a problem that really hasn't changed much. The, the, the way we are solving it is the most important thing. So I think when you're a good product manager, you look for that, which is what is the core problem? From that, look at, okay, well, how is this problem solved today? And if I understand how it's solved today, what are the areas of frictions that are experienced by the people trying to accomplish this job? What are the ones that are accepted that probably should not be accepted, right? I think another attribute of a great product manager is there's a point of friction like today for instance you know we all accept going to the store and buying milk we probably all do that buying eggs and milk and so forth a good product manager would be, be, probably say is that an acceptable thing that i have to get out of my house get into my car drive to just buy this one item? and i can many of us are going to the store multiple times a week to just buy one or two items and we have done this for 10 years 15 years so we just accept it as a way of we worked. And I think a good product manager looks at a process like that and says, okay, the, the job is not go to the store to get milk. The job is I need milk because I'm, maybe I'm making coffee or maybe I'm making a dish or anything like that. How do I accomplish that job in the most effective way in 2022 or 2023, right? That's the context you need to focus on. Often, I think the issues that a product manager might struggle with is that they're so focused on their product that they think that the product is the answer or, you know, that it's the absolute only way to solve the problem. The problem's the problem. So focus on the problem, decompose the problem, look at the frictions that are acceptable, look at the frictions that are not acceptable, and look at how by assembling a solution, you can make it most seamless for the individual to go and get the job done. Might have over-answered your question on this, but I, I really think that's the attribute that we look at is really good understanding of the problem itself. You know, the other trap of product managers is getting into solutioning very quickly, and then you end up solving the wrong problem. 
And so spending this time by listening to the customer, identifying trends, you know, I think one of the things that we do very well and I've seen work really well as well is the customers know what they want to do in terms of the job they're trying to accomplish. They might tell you that they think they should solve it with this tool or that tool or this solution and so forth. That's the bit where you have to be careful because you got to get to the core of the problem first. And then you got to, from the trends you're seeing across multiple customers, multiple use cases and so forth, then you can solution effectively. I think that's where people get tripped up a little bit. The job of the product manager is to know how to do that extremely effectively. I think at least what I think I've seen frequently is, especially in the data science and analytics space, is that we are jumping into solutions because we think that problems come to us and they're actually expressed as tactical solutions. They're not expressed as problem. And then we directly address the ask without knowing what's behind the ask. The, the issue there is often we really don't know what someone needs and the prerequisite customer exposure time has not been taken to go and figure out what's behind this request. Is this a one-off thing? Is this something they do all the time? What's their real objective behind asking for? I need a machine learning model that will do X, which is a loaded term and assumes that that's the right approach to it, which it may be one way to do it, but it may not be the only way or the right way or the fastest way to get some progress going. I'm sure you know, I think that being able to see the world as you talked about abstracting, like what's my real objective here? It's to have more time with my family at breakfast, which means I don't want to have to go get in the car just to go get one item, which means how could I improve the amount of family time I have that's not driving in a car to go get one. Abstracting the problem like that, I think, is only comes with exposure to the customers to see the world through their perspective and all of that, which I, I know you're doing a ton of if you're on the road all the time, you're hearing and watching all the time what's going on in order to inform what gets drilled down into products and features and stuff at some point. You nailed it with your definition, this idea of deconstructing the job itself. In fact, the, the book, Competing Against Slack, that I was referring to earlier, starts with this example of the milkshake. This company that is trying to produce a better milkshake for their customers and they're realizing that maybe we shouldn't make the milkshake sweeter and maybe we should you go into solutioning very quickly. And in fact, when they, Clayton Christensen and his team, when they kind of went through deconstructing the problem, they realized... Well, first of all, there's two populations of people getting the milkshakes. There's early people going through the drive-through getting the milkshake, and there's people coming in the afternoon buying the milkshake. Okay, what's the difference between these two audiences? One of them is driving to work, wants a breakfast that is going to sustain through their drive. They want to use it with one hand while they're driving. So, okay, the alternative, what it would have been to do what? Get a bagel. Now you got to eat it with both hands while you're driving, very inconvenient and so forth. The second population is actually coming in the afternoon with their child. Now you start seeing, okay, the solutioning is not make the milkshake thicker or sweet or anything like that. You know, in the afternoon, maybe it's about combining with the toy because they're coming with the child. And in the morning, it maybe it is how do you make that milkshake last and be more filling because what it competes against is full breakfast and so forth. And so the ability for a product manager that 10x thinking is look at how you deconstruct the problem first and think about what friction points you would remove in order to provide an exceptional experience for the user, if you will, so they can achieve their job. I mean, in the way, you know, I always joke with my team is as a product manager, yes, we're in the business of software, but in fact, I think you're in the career management business. Your job is to make sure that whatever your customer's job is, that you're making it so much easier that they, in fact, 
get so much more done, and by doing so, they will get promoted, get the next job. So if you start thinking about that way, how do I see the reality from their eyes? How do I see their point pressure? How do I see their friction, the issues they might have getting things done, and how do I make that easier? Then I'm the best partner for that customer. That's what a product manager should be. And then owning the delivery of that from A to Z is a huge attribute, right? Because it's so easy to say, hey, I just own this part of the equation. Well, the customer doesn't care about that, right? You should be looking at the solutioning of a well-understood problem from A to Z. That's a mindset that is very unique. Yeah, I mean, that tracks well with a lot of what's happening in user experience design, which is so intertwined with product management. And it's this idea of creating outcomes for the people. How can I improve somebody's life? And if you can do that by reducing work or giving them status or increasing their perception as being a thought leader in the business because they're, they're, they're making decisions driven by data or whatever it may be. But part of the idea is like, how do we make this person's life better in some way? And if you're focusing on that, you're going to be delivering real value to them because at the heart of it, all the objectives are aligned around the business value and all that. That's ultimately their their wish, too, is to get business value out of it. But the path to that is to actually deliver value at the user level, at the human level. Right. Get the adoption going, create the value in their eyes as they see the world and the business value will follow on top of that. So it's a very human focused approach. Right. As opposed to just seeing it as here's this logical. We built this model. The data is great, it has high predictive power, and we're talking about all the attributes of the technology, but we're not talking about how does it fit into the jobs to be done, or the, the work, the tasks that the person who's going to consume it and use it, or who's going to get value from it indirectly, how are we improving their life with this solution, even if it's technically right? In our field today, you know, there's no question that there's a lot of data, it's growing, et cetera, and we could be talking about that, but the number one pain point is extracting value out of this data. I think this research is showing like 68% of organizations still can't get value out of their data. And I think the way to unlock that is to really deconstruct the problem. What's in the way between my data and its value? We've seen this like specifically in, in database technology or the data platform and the concept of the modern data stack. You know, a simple way to think about it is serverless, right? So in the past, well, okay, to work with data, you have to think about servers and capacity and so forth. Well, serverless is going to take that problem away. You shouldn't have to do that. Now, if you double click into other types of tasks that are getting in the way, administration, right? So the creating indexes, worrying about partitioning your data, all these things, you know, as a product manager, you start thinking, okay, here's a list of things that a really talented data individual has to go through in order to get value of their data. How can I just take those things away? Another example is Spark. People want to work with Spark while well, standing up infrastructure for Spark takes 50 to 60% of someone that wants to work with Spark. So this is an acceptable friction. As a product manager, you should probably devise a system that just takes that right off the bat. Like why aren't we able to just work straight with Spark? Why isn't just secured with the rest of the platform? Why isn't building at the job level rather than the infrastructure? So those are the questions that a product manager works really closely with their customers, starts asking these whys. Or like, why does this need to happen if it's not the main job, is this a task that actually needs to be done by this particular individual? We're in the right in the middle of that right now. It's a beautiful time to work in data in, in 2022 and 2023 because we have all the technology that can unlock this. We're just now the solution around it appropriately for the problem at hand. And I think that is the task of any technology company 
of any product manager that's helping these technology companies is don't build a product that's looking for a problem. Just start with the problem back and solution from that. Just make sure you understand the problem very well. I've had my fair share of failure in the career building the wrong products is that's, that's where it just goes south is that you get enamored with the solution. And unfortunately, the solution is inappropriate for the problem because you misunderstood the problem was. To echo what you said in the design framing, or at least Jared Spool is a great label for this, which is goal time versus tool time. And so your Spark example is a great example of there's a lot of tool time requirement before I ever get to do anything with Spark, which we could call my goal time, right? The actual analysis of the data or getting the insights, getting the value. But I have all this labor and tax that goes with it up front. And I would suggest to teams like building if you're working on a data platform and that's kind of your product is looking at high frequency tasks, right? What stuff is happening all the time by the consumers and users of the data or of the plumbing itself and addressing things like that, either high value use cases that are maybe infrequent, but they're very high value or maybe low to medium value, but they're repeated so often by so many different people that if you solve those, you're going to get nice value that comes out of that because you're addressing real pains that are felt by many. But the point is it's still driven by the sense of friction, right? Where is their friction? Where is their difficulty? How can we reduce that there? So especially relevant, I think, to, to platform teams, anyone that's building tooling that might be used like by technical users in particular, data scientists, for example, building models or whatever. How do we get them focused on model building and not the model plumbing? How can we remove some of that tax that they have to pay? I want to jump into data product management for a second, but in order to do that, I have to ask a question I ask a lot of my guests, which is what is a data product? Because you can't really have data product managers without having a data product. But this phrase means different things. And I'm just kind of curious if you have a somewhat succinct definition, just so as we talk about this, we have a common understanding. Do you have like a way to define that that you like to use or think about? For me, the best definition of a data product is the undeniable artifact of a data-driven culture, an undeniable measured by value. There's, there's too much talk of, is your company data-driven? But we don't know, what does it mean to be data-driven? And then for me, I think what I've seen organizations do is that they are able to deliver solutions that derive value for your business, repeated practices. You have to be able to do it once, you have to be able to do it twice, and you have to do it multiple times because, you know, what you're trying to solve for is also a huge cultural shift inside your organization where now your data team, your IT organization is no longer responding to requests that are coming in and kind of this treadmill of building data solutions. You've changed the game by what you're leading with the solution and you're focused on you know, creating this, if you will, this factory of deploying solutions that are making the creation of value out of data a lot more uh, repeatable and seamless. You know, and there's two ways that you create value in an organization is save money and make money. And so that's the easiest way that I would look at it is if you're a data product manager today, you look at your data estate and you ask yourself, what am I building to save money? What am I building to make money? If you could do both, that's absolutely awesome. And so that's the, the data product is, is an asset that has been built repeatedly by a team and generates value out of data. I don't know if it's a great definition. I kind of improvise it as we go here, but that's what I'm seeing. If you have a data product manager on your team, does this imply that means a product-driven approach to building data products is being used? Are those non-decouplable? 
Is that what that means? And so, t- so tell me a little bit about this data product manager role as, as maybe you're observing it in the wild. Does that have anything to do with the process of how the sausage is being made or not necessarily? Oh, absolutely. The great news for, I think, people listening to us today is that you don't have to invent this, right? Product management has been a discipline for many, many years. You just have to bore that into your organization construct. What are the attributes of a data product manager? We already talked about the mindset, mindset of ownership, the the mindset of understanding the problem before the solutioning, that's a key one. PRDs, product requirement documents. That's a, an artifact that your product managers should absolutely be in charge of that describe, here is the press release if we were to deploy this, right? Because regardless if you're building this product for your internal audience or your, inter- or your external audience, the idea is the same, which is how do I explain what it is that I'm building and what is the value to my constituents? So the PRD is an important document that every product manager should write. It expresses the vision that they have for the product and it forces them to think end-to-end on what's required to deliver such a great outcome for the audience. The way you organize your engineering efforts related to this product manager, right? Because a product manager is always any product organization. There's a ratio of product manager, software engineers. What is it? So here's a way to fail. You believe in this product manager mindset but you have no engineering resources associated to this product manager, you will not be able to output this product once and you certainly will not be able to output it repeatedly. The other construct is how do you organize yourself with uh, software engineering? And then there is this idea that when you build a product, you don't just release it. The minute the product is launched, the product manager needs to think about what's the next version. They've already thought about it. Ideally, they have a roadmap because this is a living thing, right? The idea of behind the product is We are designing for things that we understand, but don't understand with perfection, because the more you produce answers, the more questions you're going to get. The mindset of the product manager is saying, look, this is V1, and V1 is going to accomplish removing unacceptable piece of frictions I've established. But inevitably, as it's getting to market, I will identify other things of friction that maybe my solution is not effective at solving for, but maybe I'm introducing other frictions that... Now I need to take into account. And so this whole idea of making a full life cycle and and, and an ongoing one is really important. That's why I think about, it's not just about having your product manager. It's also about having the mindset of the full life cycle of it coming back, fixing the bugs and always thinking about this as a solution that is a living solution inside your organizations. I mean, you, you take any consumer product today and that's certainly how you expect that they would behave. Take any product you use today, the minute they're shipped, you're going to have new requirements. And that's what you want, right? I, I used to have, when I was at, at scale, the leader for engineering, friend of mine, Matt, always I used this sentence. I said, I want my users to use my product in anger. And I think it's a Canadian expression. He's from Canada. But that's what you're looking for because it shows that the audience is depending on this product. It is effectively starting to solve a problem for them. And now they want to advance this and they're angry about it and then they're impatient about it. That is the best type of tension you want as a product manager. So you can ultimately get the job done. That's the idea. You've described what I call the, the difference between this project orientation and a product orientation. So the way I frame this in design is that the, the design, the product design work is never done. We're never done. There's just checkpoints and milestones along this path. It's an infinite game. There's no end of the game. The game just goes on forever. That requires a different management approach, though, as well, because now you're talking about 
supporting this custom software solution that's living inside the organization. There can be resource issues because a lot of times I think the DPMs don't have access. They don't own dedicated resources, just like sometimes the CDO doesn't necessarily own resources. Can you talk a little bit about what, I don't know if you're seeing this much, is, is there friction here? Okay, now we know we wanna do it this way, but the organization isn't set up for us to do that because engineering is owned by IT or it's owned by digital, which is under the consumer arm. And that's not the internal operations, which is where we fall under, but that's where our engineering is. And they have a different agenda because the consumer product has this roadmap, and, but we're trying to build a machine learning model to do X, Y, and Z. Can you talk a little bit about how, how these teams are playing together or, or not and some of the growing pains that might be associated with implementing this product orientation inside an, an enterprise? There are three patterns you know, I've witnessed. I think the first one is the pattern of internal alignment of teams, just like you talked about in there. You know, the, the way this pattern typically is solved is uh, you're not looking for sponsorship here. You're looking for mandate. You're looking for someone at the top saying, this is an important solution that we're building. You, you don't want to hear projects. That's a bad word. You don't want to use an experiment. That's not what you're looking for. So that's the ideal situation. Pattern number one, alignment between product managers and engineering. There is a, a roadmap for building it the first time. There's a roadmap for following through the roadmap and supporting the users of that solution. It is a solution and it's monetized through, you know, whatever vectors your organization. So that's the internal model. The second model we see is this, the, the external model where the product manager essentially hires an organization to execute on this particular solution. And same, similarly has a plan. They pay for the work of the external organization. Typically, the place where it breaks is when the product manager delegates the definition of the strategy. That is a, a good way to get a sideways type of results. You don't ever want to do that. You know, the core job as a product manager is understanding the vision, how you align with the business goals and, and drive value from it. So that is not what I'm talking about outsourcing. The, the building of it might be. The third one is when you actually are able as a product manager to own the definition, the building, the launching, you know, I mean, there are, if you talk about machine learning, machine learning industry is really struggled. It's very low. I don't have the stats in front of me, but very low success, right? So half of the machine learning models are getting into production. And I think what I've witnessed there is that it's about being unable to reduce the barriers of building a solution and putting it into production. Today, machine learning is fairly hard for the average organization. It's hard because multiple teams have to work together, right? You've got your business analyst over here. You've got your data scientist over there. They're not even the same team. And so sometimes you're struggling with just a human aspect of it. It's just a human nature. It just happens. When you have two different teams like that and they're ineffective at collaborating, that's barrier number one. Second, beyond the human silos, you have technology silos, right? So you have the data scientists, maybe they're using Python or Spark, and then the business analysts, they're just part, they're using SQL, right? So they have different languages. And so now you got to create some translation there. And there's a whole issue around infrastructure, typically getting your data scientists, data analysts work with the same understanding, same data. You got to move data, maybe you're using different infrastructures, all technology stack here that's not making this collaboration easy. What we have witnessed is the organizations that are able to actually drive innovation faster. They use the same infrastructure and they have a platform that understands all these languages. So you can effectively collaborate and, and they have figured out from a technology human standpoint, human standpoint could be shared OKRs, for instance. 
they have figured out a way to reduce the cost of experimentation to nothing. So now more and more people are able to contribute to the solution. You get more tries, if you will. Maybe you get a lowest hit rate, but the process is simpler. I think one of the issues today is, particularly for machine learning, there is this need to orchestrate for perfection. And sometimes we make the simple problems complex. And now, now you get what you get today, which is half the models make into production because you know, they might have been perfect in this environment, but in the real world, they actually are dealing with a bunch of other issues you have not designed for. So these, I think, making it really hard to succeed. So three, three models that we see. The first one is, of course, the best one. But again, in that, even in that one, when you have resources align, the word that you're looking for is not sponsorship. Sponsorship is saying, I'm with you. I agree it's important. I'll sponsor this. But if it fails, it's not existential. Mendit says, that's it. That's the way we do business. We will have a product that will deliver this value based on these terms. And you as a product manager, you get to define what the solution is. So that's an important one. You want to find a leader in that organization that is behind you on that. Yeah, I, I think that's required too, especially with the, the lack of, quote, power or ownership over the resources to do the execution work. I think the, the other thing that comes with that is a clear sense that the product, the DPM and whoever the other key stakeholder, their peer stakeholders are, whether it's someone from engineering or data science or design or, or, who, or an SME, that they collectively feel like they own this problem space, not just the solution, but they actually feel ownership of the problem. Like we are aligned because if we don't help sales reduce the number of bad outbound phone calls they're making, then this whole thing has failed. That is our, our mission is to improve the hit rate. We don't know how to do it yet. They're good dashboards, maybe machine learning models, maybe an app, maybe who knows what it is. But that mission is we got to reduce the wasted time that the sales team is spending. If the engineering person feels that as they're championing that and the design and the data engineering and the data science and, and the DPM, and it really comes down to the DPM making that statement clear to everyone. And I think sometimes they have to make it even more clear than maybe leadership did, because maybe leadership's like, we need to do stuff with AI. We need an AI strategy. And it's pretty vague. Maybe it's a little bit more clear than that, but the DPM gets it down to, okay, really what they're saying is the salespeople are wasting time. That's really what, when they say that, they mean this. This is now what our agenda is going to be. And I think that it really falls on the DPM to be the, the clear champion of that and to make that clear in language that all the parties can understand that are going to have a stake in it. And if you get that part right, it's much easier to get alignment on the solution because everyone knows how we will measure it. Well, did we make less outbound bad calls or not? What are the metrics? You said OKRs, what are the metrics? We can measure this now because we all know what it means to get it wrong. And I think a lot of times that's missing. I, when I ask people, what are you trying to do? They express it to me in terms of the solution they're trying to build. To, to have this tennis match sometime, I got to keep extracting it back to what the problem space was. And then finally they state it. And it's something that's never been written down anywhere. If you ask five people, they don't all know this. They don't, it's not like they should have a one sentence that all of these leaders could repeat to me on the snap of a finger. It shouldn't be that hard, but so often it's missing because everyone is so focused on the solution space and usually some ship that left the dock, which was we're going to build X thing. It's going to have a dashboard on it. And then there's going to be a piece of a little AI widget that's going to tell you something with a chat bot. They all are so focused on that artifact that they think is the answer. 
it's natural, right? Because in our industry, when you have high performing individuals that are used to solving problems, you know, it's, it's a natural thing to go and say, oh, I know the solution to this. You want to naturally just go to a shortcut. But I think just going back to your point on OKRs, right? For people who don't know OKRs, objectives, key results is what is the goal? And so for that, there's a few things we've noticed is first of all, I didn't say what are the goals? I said, what is the goal? If you can reduce it to just one thing, it's a great way to galvanize everybody towards a few metrics. I think the last thing we want is somebody to come out with, here are the 50 things I'm going to measure. Don't do that because then you'll create a bunch of noise that is ultimately not helpful. So that's practice number one we've seen when it comes to OKRs, the few OKRs, the best. Second is when I've said shared OKRs, the best practice I've seen, at least with my customers, when there's a partnership like that between the CIO and let's say the CMO, they each give each other an OKR they cannot control. The CIO will take a lead conversion OKR. That CIO cannot effectively control the outcome unless they partner with the CMO. It's an effective way to just engineer, if you will, collaboration inside the organization. And then over-communicate what is the feeling of accomplished its goals. This company, I think this is public because it's, uh, uh, you know, Tesla, um, you know, they were looking at their training. This is something I, I, I heard recently in the, in the public podcast, so I, I think this is fine to share. But I thought it was very indicative way of how to think about the goal. They're trying to think about how do I enable my salespeople to think about what I'm trying to achieve during test drives and things like that. And the goal was, I want them to talk about their experience at dinner time. So that's an interesting way to express kind of how the goal feels. Of course, the metric is the conversion of test drives to people purchasing. But the way you accomplish that is by creating memorable experience. So now you're telling your salespeople in the, in the test drive, how do you make that? amazingly, you know, memorable. And so as I think as a, as a data leader, an IT leader, you got to think about those soft ways to accomplish the stuff that's binary, that's the hard, right? I, I always joke like the, you know, the, the hard stuff is the soft stuff for people like us because we think about data, we think about logic. We think, okay, if it makes sense, it will be implemented. For most of us, you know, getting stuff done is through people and, and people, you know, are emotional. How can you express the feeling of achieving that, goal and emotional value. And so in this case, in the Tesla example, conversion of test drive to purchase is through creating this amazing customer experience. So think about it like that as, as a product manager. What's the experience you want to try to create? That ties in well to kind of my wrap up questions here, but I was curious about, you mentioned product and engineering. What's the role of design and user experience and like your Google Cloud products? Like I, I think I think there's still a fairly large community that maybe thinks these technical tools don't really need design. They should be complicated. Like I don't need help and all this. And I'm like a data engineer is also a user of services as is a data scientist. And I guarantee you there's work they do not want to be doing just because they know how to do it doesn't mean it's time well spent or desired. It can just be a tax. And even though they know how to do it, so talk to me a little bit about that experience. Does, does user experience play much of a factor in how you design these technical tools that you work on? And, and what do you see in terms of the DPM, your customers, in terms of whether or not they are using user experience designers to help make sure that these data products actually get used? Absolutely. If, you, if there's one thing I learned in the 25 years in software engineering is this principle. What is the best UI? The best UI is no UI. What I mean by that is, yes, there are tasks to be achieved, what is the best, most effective way to do that? I mean, 
here's a product many of us use, uh, iPhone or Android phones. We went from having to unlock it, entering your code, to just looking at it and just opening in front of it. That's an example of no UI. Like, was this a task that was required for you to enter a passcode? If your ID is your face, and so I think as a great product manager, you gotta go back to this idea, look, people don't wanna do the tasks. People wanna do, they wanna get the benefit of the solving the problem they're trying to solve for. The fact that you're making them go through these tasks, you really got to question which are the ones that are absolutely necessary for them to go. You know, we talked about AI. It's one I love as well, because when do you know that you use AI? And everybody says, oh, you know, AI is, stands for artificial intelligence, right? And actually, you know, my, my contention with that acronym is actually AI should stand for applied and invisible. You know you're using AI when you actually don't see it. That is the value of it, right? All these tasks that you're trying to do that today take you a process, what if I could take this process away? Either go away because it's automated, either go away because it's not necessary. Simple examples, you know, there's a lot of things going on on, on TV right now. The World Cup is going on. Even two years ago, for us to watch a game, you'd have to be in the living room, you'd have to turn on a TV, you'd have, and now you witness so many people don't even have a TV. They, don't, they can just watch it from their phone while you know they're doing a bunch of other things i think that's what i, I think about as as a, as a product manager is really audit that right what is the job that needs to be done what is the list of friction points that your audience is experiencing what is absolutely unacceptable you're designing for 10x the experience got to be completely different and how does your ui participate in the elimination of these tasks that are just tax that's the best way i think to think about Product like Waze, for instance, you know, when I pull up my phone and I get in my car and it knows to my calendar that my next meeting is coming up, it just puts the address and tells me, here is the route. That's awesome because that is the job I'm trying to get done. All other alternative in the old days, go into your computer, print out the map, look at the map, right? I don't have to think about it. I just pull up my phone all of a sudden, oh, your next appointment is at this location. Here is the most effective route. That's correct. That is the problem I'm trying to solve. Get to my meeting on time. Not... What is, I don't care to know what the effective route is. I just trust that we have the technology to get there. That's the, I think the, the mindset here. I think sometimes people feel like, oh, they're because they're technical tools or this is, we're well, not really going to see it and all this kind of stuff that there's not a role for design, but design is also about subtraction, right? A, a good design is really about what can we take away from this experience as well? Not just, not about decorating, right? It's about really thinking about that experience, which is, I have no goal to use a wayfinding app. My objective is not to use the wayfinding app. My objective is to get to point A to point B in the fastest amount of time with the least amount of traffic, with the least amount of clicking and all that. So anticipating like, well, maybe you are going to the next meeting and I can tell that you're not located in the same area. So therefore I am going to prompt you to go to the next meeting automatically. Even though the software we're using right now, if I'm on mute and I start talking, I'll get a message that says, by the way, you're muted. That's not a that's not something you find out until you've talked to customers because it doesn't seem like a logical requirement. Like, well, they hit mute, so nothing's gonna happen. No, they hit mute accidentally and forgot that the host, like Brian, was on mute and he forgot. So sometimes those that only comes though if you've actually talked to customers and realized that they've forgotten to do this. Sometimes we have the stroke of genius and we think about that, we anticipate that kind of requirement. These kinds of hidden things is just as much they need to be intentionally designed. They don't just fall out of the sky as freebies necessarily, right? 
it's about those invisible features, right, that enable this uh, incredible experience. That's what you're going after with the, the jobs to be done theory is about that. I mean, I haven't used a, a car key in four years. I just walk up to my car. It just knows it's me. And I open the door and I drive off. I park it. I close the door. It just locks. Why do I need a key? Five years ago, I'd have to put in the key or maybe I have to have the key with me. Those are, I think, the people are leading on, on UI is they're, they're thinking about the job to be done, what gets in the way, how do I make it easy or how do I make it disappear? Do you find uh, more of your customers are deploying intentional design into their teams that are building their data products or is that still pretty nascent? Are you seeing any trends there? Yeah, and, and it's, again, I think we go back to that's the job of the product manager. That's why I was saying, he, you know, they are the CEO of, of the product manager. Is you, you design with this experience in mind, which means you do start with the UI and, and the experience of the current solution because you're trying to find the friction points. And, and often the friction points is how people interact with your software, either because it is purely interface. There's a few routes you can take. Route one is the task actually needs to be done. How is it done today? Oh, there's 15 steps to get it done. How do I get it down to three? You know, simplification of the UI is, is, is the way to do it. The example I talked about the map here is a great one because they do need to be able to look at the map before they you know, drive off and so forth. Well, in the past, they needed to enter the address they go to, look at a particular website, maybe print it, bring it into their car. It's almost dangerous to have the, I mean, how many of us did that printed map and looking at the map or if you don't have a co-pilot, all those things are bad. Alternative to this is, you get in your car, pull up your phone. Are you going to this location? Yes. What is the best route? You've clicked on it twice. Now, essentially done a very efficient way of using technology. That's, that's one way. The other way is the task actually doesn't need to be done. Uh, partitioning, building indexes and so forth. Why doesn't the data environment understand that? It should, right? And so can you build a system by which I just throw any data at this thing? I have to think about is it structured, unstructured? Does it need to be partitioned? Do I need to bring indexes? How many machines do I need to support that? Why, as a data person, do you have to think about that? Yes, it's true. You used to. There's a great poster from, uh, you know, the demotivational uh, company, I think it's a company called Despair. Those posters that have great photos and they take like values like tradition and and they make fun, ambition and they make, the they make fun of that. Yeah. <laughs> There's one that's about tradition and I have in front of me here and it says tradition, just because you've done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid, right? You know, <laughs> the great thing about tradition, but as a product manager yourself, question yourself, is this the best way to get this job done? If the answer is no, then, you know, reinvent. If the answer is yes, then make it easier. And if I was product manager, I would probably print that, put it in front of my desk. And that's the value of 10x thinking is what's amazing in this time of technology, anything's possible. We really can solve any problem. At the same time, we also have to think because anything's possible, anything can be designed, anything can be built. And the last trap you don't want to fall into is build something that nobody needs. And so that's the discipline of product management is understanding the difference between these two scenarios. Bruno, it's been great to talk to you. Do you have any just closing thoughts about data product management or data products you'd like to share? Maybe some projections where you see things going. I'm in particular curious about whether or not this more digital native approach to building data products is just going to kind of become normal at some point in the legacy enterprises or whether that's going to be one of many ways to do things. 
The main thought I would leave people with is this data product idea is, is a key to, for them to unlock the data-driven talk track that they've heard for, for many years. To some extent, for many data leaders, it's been impossible to get a handle on, like, am I dr data-driven or not? How do I assess that? The best way that I know how to help companies like that is to ask them, what are you building that is effectively driving value on two vectors where it's saving money and making money? And so I would, if I was a CIO or a data leader today, I would truly take a look at that trend and look at my organization and how I've structured the organization works for you, but also the organization that you support. A lot of questions we get is, should I have everything decentralized? Should I have everything decentralized? And I think organizations have moved to now this federated system where you have people in the central team, but you have people also in the, in the various business units that you're serving. And so I'd say as a CIO, chief data officer, VP of analytics, look hard at data products. The good news is it's leaning on a practice that has been in existence for a very long time. This is not a buzzy new marketing word. It is an effective way for you to drive your organization to the, the next phase. And then the great news, I mean, when I started in data, very few people really were interested in databases, analytics, all this stuff was back office. We now have the opportunity to be front office driving value for the operations. And so it's a great time to be in data. So even if you're starting in this profession, this is probably a profession that's going to grow the most. You know, in 10 years from now, the chief data officer is going to be as essential to the organization as the CFO is today. People will not ask me, why do I hire chief data officer? I mean, we saw it like 10 years ago, it was 12% organizations had CDOs. Now it's 60 plus. I don't have to stand in front of me, but it's an insane amount of people now have the CDO. So we're, we're moving to that culture of data first. Uh, it's super encouraging. And then I would invite anyone to ping me on LinkedIn, connect with me and, uh, you know, let me know what you're seeing. You know, we're here to learn. So we want to hear from the community how we can make this space go to the next level. Bruno, thanks for coming on. And where is that that they can meet you? You said LinkedIn's the best. You know your handle name just for people that are only listening and that may not read the transcript. What's your uh, handle on there? Bruno Aziza. So it's LinkedIn forward slash in, I think, forward slash Bruno Aziza. So Bruno, like Bruno Mars and Aziza, A-Z-I-Z-A, reads forward and backwards the same way. So it's pretty easy last name to remember. And you can Google me. I think there's only, uh, like my wife says, thank, thank God uh, there's only one Bruno Aziza in the world. So <laughs> you could just, you know, find me. One's enough. She thinks one's, one's enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes maybe it's one too many. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on Experiencing Data. It's been great to chat with you. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.